Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I think all of us are fed up with the type of politics that both parties are engaged in. It all seems like they're interested in empire maintenance or slight, uh, slight tweaks to our managerial bureaucracy. We don't have a lot of people heading for something higher, something different, trying to change the game that we're involved in wanted to talk to Johnny Berkta today a little bit about that. He's got a couple of pieces over at the American Mind that I thought were pretty interesting. And he's also the president over at ISI. Johnny, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Ashley, so for people who are unaware, can you give a little bit of background? How did you get into what you're doing now, politics, that kind of thing? Sure. I went to Hillsdale College uh, from 20, uh, 2008 to 2012. And I actually studied religion in French. So at the time, I didn't have any direct interest in politics. I went to seminary, studied more theology. And then my, my own personal theology was shifting. So I was actually a Calvinist at the time. And I came out the other end, Eastern Orthodox. And so in, in, along the way in that journey, I decided to get back into politics. So I came and worked for ISI for two years, my first job out of grad school, and then for four, I left and I ran the American Conservative magazine in Washington, D.C. And then ISI recruited me back as president. And I've been uh, president of ISI for three years now. Excellent. Yeah, you don't, you don't usually hear a theological shift as the reason for that. But that is a very interesting thing. They, of course, often do align, even though people don't necessarily realize that. And uh, Eastern Orthodox has certainly uh, picked up a, a lot of people making that shift as well. So interesting to to see how that kind of weaves its way into a politics of transcendence. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get into that in just a moment. But before we do, let's hear from today's sponsor. These days, it's impossible to thrive with just one job. Between increasing living costs, paying off debts, and planning for the future, things like buying a home, building savings, and even going on vacation can seem like fantasies. If your goal is financial freedom, you could start taking on more hours at your current job, work towards a promotion or try putting your money into something risky like stocks, cryptocurrencies, or even a side hustle. But at the end of the day, do you really want to sacrifice time and energy that could otherwise be spent with your loved ones or on your hobbies just to make a living? Luckily, you don't have to hustle to reliably make more money. All you have to do is job stacking. Job stacking is the best way for regular people, regular employees, to unleash their earning potential and increase job and financial security. How? by working multiple jobs, but without burning out or more importantly, getting caught by corporate overlords. Job stacking allows you to reliably receive paychecks from multiple employers each month without having to work more than eight hours a day. You don't have to be in tech or any particular field or industry to do it as long as you can work remotely. If you've thought about working multiple jobs, but you're not sure how to start or are afraid of getting caught, Get the fundamental job stacking course today and learn all of the secrets on how to sustainably work multiple full-time jobs from the foremost expert on the matter, Rolf Halza, author of Job Stacking. Rolf has worked multiple full-time jobs since 2018, including hybrid jobs, and has condensed all of his experiences and wisdom into a single four-module online course so you can start proficiently job stacking without having to make mistakes, figuring things out on your own, or reinventing the wheel in the process. Go to www.jobstacking.com and enter the promo code ORIN to get a special discount. All right, Johnny. So one of the things that you address over at the American mind is the way that the shift of America from a nation into an empire impacted its political realities, the way that that changed the way that it approached politics, the way 
that its leaders behaved and, and moved further away from from a more traditional statesman and into kind of what we have now. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that shift. How did or when did when would you say America became an empire and how did that impact the way that it approached politics? Mm -hmm. It's a great starting point. So I think America really became an empire around uh, the the uh, 1900, right? So basically you saw um, during the McKinley kind of Roosevelt era, that shift towards uh, an expansionist, uh, I think foreign policy, but also very practically acquiring territory like Hawaii, like the Panama Canal zone, the Philippines, uh, you see uh, Roosevelt sending the, the Great White Fleet of the American Navy around the world as a sign of American sea power and a message to the nations that we were really eclipsing the British Empire uh, on the world stage. So I, I think that's really when it, it began to shift. And you also see, you know, at home, there's a corresponding shift. It starts with the, the progressive movement. I, I actually admire some of the, you know, the trust busting of Teddy Roosevelt, but there's certainly this this uh, a growing executive power that accompanies the shift in foreign policy. But I actually think it's quite important for people to understand that the shift in foreign policy comes first, and then the pressures of maintaining an empire abroad necessitate stronger executive power at home. So what happens during this time? Because I think, you know, you rightly point out no constitutional amendments take place. There's no official alteration of the way that we govern. But clearly, it's not just that the, the president gets more power, because when we look at Trump, he had almost no power, right? He, he, you can't just say, well, it moves power to the executive and then look at someone like Donald Trump, who's, whose generals basically laughed at him in foreign policy. So I think there's a deeper, a deeper change that occurs there. What, why did we not write anything in the Constitution, but all of a sudden some presidents seem to have almost dictatorial control and some presidents barely seem to have control of their own executive branch? Sure. And you, you, you could argue that someone, uh, you know, conservative president ought to have more presidential executive power today to especially rein in these, uh, you know, the, the deep state and these rogue bureaucracies. I think you really saw what you're describing as kind of the establishment of uh, uh, and the administrative state, which I think morphed into this oligarchic class, begin. Um, there, I think there's a general shift away from statesmanship to expertise and a management society. I think this began probably under Wilson, uh, but FDR, you really see the expansion of it with the creation of you know numerous uh, New Deal agencies that Congress essentially created at the behest of the president. And I think in the early days, those were pretty responsive to executive power. But over time, as those uh, agencies multiplied and as Congress continued to really, I think, to some extent, meet the demands of the American people who are looking for a more assertive role of the federal government uh, in their lives, you know, whether it's, you know, around civil rights issues, whether it's around uh, other issues just to deliver relief, Social Security, uh, Medicare, uh, other programs along these lines. You see the, many of these agencies being created. And then because Congress has really delegated these authorities, which they're technically not based on the Constitution, allowed to do. And the president doesn't really have uh, direct control to hire and fire all of the uh, employees, although I think there are some 
uh, people working on legal theories to to get rid of or be able to have the president fire more of these bureaucrats. He can really only control a very small number, maybe 10, 20 percent of the political appointees at top. And what you end up having is this, you know, this thick bureaucratic administrative state that I think in, in some areas is really more of an administrative state. It's it's essentially inertia with a liberal bent. And then in other areas, it's much more hostile, like you see in the intelligence agencies that are actively working to thwart, um, you know, major aspects of a president's legislation. So in the end, uh, it's not actually the executive power that ends up getting propped up, but it's really the power of an, an oligarchic class that is exerting influence. And, and really, it's a class of people that move seamlessly between government and business and philanthropy. Yeah, I think that's critical. It's something that I talk a lot about. And of course, I think more conservatives are starting to understand this, the nature of this problem that you've elevated the class of people that it doesn't just exist inside your government. It's not just small government that's going to solve your problem because uh, the the powers that are being wielded, uh, while, while they do seem to work with the regime, uh, they do seem to work in concert with the state, are not officially constrained by the Constitution or the apparatus that it would wield. I want to talk about that a little more, but before we do, I wanted to get to a shift you had noticed there between the statesman and the manager. I think a lot of people would have a hard time drawing a distinction. What would a a country or or kind of a, a cabinet or that, that is steered by statesmen, how does that look different from one that is mainly influenced by the administrative state? Sure. Well, I just spent the past two years working on a book on the Mirrors for Princes genre of literature and statesmanship, which maybe we'll get into more detail uh, later on in the episode. But really, if you look at the classic texts on statesmanship in every civilization, going all the way back to Greece, Rome, China, India, there is an immense amount of of, um, advice, really, that's centered on... uh, on, on moral and theological principles, not just in the abstract, but in their application in the real world. And you actually get a sense that to be a statesman is a real art. It's a craft. It, it requires prudence. It requires virtue. There's an element, even in you know, Machiavelli, of, of destiny and fortune and sort of a great ambitious leader kind of riding the waves of fortune and, and uh, you know, the... the um, the, their enemies who come at them, they're used as ladders to kind of climb the rungs of greatness. You know, it's a very sort of beautiful, captivating uh, thing. And, and, and I think you, you end up getting with the progressive era, you know, a strong sense of discomfort with this understanding of, of statesmanship. And I think it, it in part is uh, sort of a, a scientism you know, it's it's the belief that everything in the world can just simply be measured and known in a very rational way and that decisions, you know, you can make dis- decisions by sort of tinkering with an apparatus. You want kind of kind of experts who can work the levers of bureaucratic power. Sort of the era of great men and women is sort of behind us. Uh, and so I think that's really the the mindset shift that takes place in the early 20th century. Yeah, and I think this is just occurring. This is just modernity's attack on everything. Are you a baseball guy at all? I don't know. Um, I'm a college football guy, not a not okay. a baseball guy. But I'm, you know, if, if you're familiar, I don't. They did a movie on uh, on this. Uh, Brad Pitt did the Moneyball movie. I don't know if you remember that at all. But basically, this phenomenon of like taking you. Know, you used to have scouts, and they would go out and they would look at a player, and they they would 
identify different qualities in that player and and would make predictions on kind of where that person would go and then they move to this money ball model which is you know everybody's just got a million you know stats and they're just crunching all the numbers and shaving all the edges and and it drains the magic out of things and it works for a while, but eventually it, it, it kind of sucks the soul out of everything. And I think about that, you know, kind of when that gets applied to, to politics as well, a lot of people would rather have this known quantity of, you know, Oh, he's got this certification. He spent this many years through going through the university system. He's got this many credential pieces and therefore, you know, we're going to go ahead and filter everything through this, this bureaucracy. And, and that's, what's going to, churn out the consensus opinion rather than having that dynamic uh you know choice made by states but i think people are really uncomfortable mm -hmm. in the modern world with the idea of great men and great women mm -hmm. in fact i you know you make the point in the piece and i think it's right in some ways there's something baked into the american uh consciousness about uh you know great men and women and and that they should not be wielding that kind of power and i think that's something that while i think you're right about kind of the nature of that transition I think that's something that you do run into when you're attempting to kind of re-implement that mm -hmm. you're you're in some ways trying to re-mystify uh, kind of the political process. And, and I think that that scares a lot of people. Yeah, and I don't think it necessarily needs to. I think there are ways, you know, and there are individuals in the American tradition. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is one of my you know favorite founders. So you do see these these visionary leaders who who like energy, who have a lot of energy, who, you know, I, Hamilton is the architect of American capitalism. And he wrote, you know, his report on manufacturers was all about how do we make America the greatest industrial power on earth and how, you know, without, you know, proposing a, a, um, a status solution the way we think of it today, but how can you use aspects of trade and industrial policy to establish American independence, right? Because, I think a lot of people forget that the Declaration of Independence isn't just about the abstract political principles contained in the Declaration. There was a concrete purpose for this document. It was independence mm -hmm. from Great Britain. And establishing that independence was more than just a political act. It actually required the young nation to, to separate, to break free from the British imperial economic system and, and stand on its own two feet. And that took a lot of time, but Hamilton had the vision for that. So I think as you go throughout American history, you do see, you know, some of our most revered presidents, um, whether it's, uh, you know, Hamilton, who was never actually the president himself, but you see Jefferson when he was president, right? He exercised with the Louisiana Purchase and other things, a little bit more aggressive action than he, he would allow for in theory. You see this with Lincoln, you see it with Teddy Roosevelt, you see it with FDR, uh, the list could, could go on. So I, I'm with you uh, kind of up to this point. And I think that the goal that, you know, of, of kind of returning uh, a statesman-like approach to, to politics is certainly a good one. But I worry about the, the ability to return because, you know, when, when you start talking about the way that we would, we would kind of turn towards this, I wonder if there aren't some issues that would come with scale. But I guess the first thing we should do is, is explain how we would do this. So if America, I guess the first question is, can America actually return to the type of governance you're talking about? Because it has become this global empire, right? The, the, right. Whether, whether it should have or not, you know, I would argue that many of the things that, you know, that Alexander Hamilton did put you on a collision course with this, right? Like in order to right. free yourself from the British mercantile empire, 
you had to become the mercantile empire, right? And and so many of our goals, uh, you know, it may have led us to this point. But I, I, the the question is, now that we have reached this point, can we go back? Can we govern ourselves differently? Can we, uh, you know, a, a, uh, go go to this different form of governance? And how would we do that? How would we roll back the clock or, or find a way forward that that still incorporates many of the traditions you're talking about? Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any way to roll back the clock. I think the only way uh, we have to go is forward. And so that means we have to acknowledge both. And, and I, and, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm probably, you know, just as big of a, a skeptic of America's military interventions abroad in the last 30 years as, as anyone else. I think a lot of what we've done on the world stage has been, uh, has been, oh, pardon me here. Uh, has been reprehensible. Um, but I think it, it's one of those challenges where you have to recognize that the 20th century was the American century and that that American century and the prosperity that came with it and that drive for greatness, you know, the drive that really made us into a global hegemon after World War II uh, had some costs and some serious drawbacks with, and we're living in that reality today. So going back is hard. That doesn't mean we we don't... Um, Take the example of the founders, you know, the Constitution itself, these other American traditions of federalism and other things and draw from them today. But I think we have to reckon with the reality that we have. And I think there, there is there is a way where um, America can regain her industrial independence, that we can start to move supply chains uh, back to the United States and critical industries, that that empire that we have can can be more focused upon, you know, sort of classic Monroe Doctrine, really, you know, preserving our authority within our sphere of influence in the Americas itself um, and, and resist the temptation to dive into conflicts in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. So I think there's a way in which you can scale back some of the worst excesses of it. But I think at the end of the day, uh, at least I still want America to be a great power in our neck of the woods. I think that's important for our independence and for our security. So there's a way that you can still have that as the world shifts to a more multipolar uh, reality. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. You know, obviously we had the you know we had a bipolar reality up to the end of the Cold War, and and then we have a unipolar reality. You know, uh, after it, and this has of course, created a lot of opportunity for the United States, obviously not having a uh, world power with a number of, you know, world ending uh, weapons aimed at you at all times and, and fighting for kind of the existential control of uh, of the world is probably a good thing. But it is, of course, also led us to the excesses that you're talking about uh, in, in kind of American foreign policy adventurism. It's very interesting that, you know, you kind of had that, that paleocon split at the end of uh, the Cold War, because you know, is all this well? We were on board with growing government as long as it meant getting rid of the uh, you know the, the the Soviet Union. But now that it's gone, why are we still doing this? And this is where you kind of get the Pat Buchanan and, and such. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of looking at at the, that post uh, uh, that post Cold War split in conservatism. But I think the problem is, you know, a lot of people are now observing, as you said, that we might be moving to a more multipolar reality mm-hmm. that the United States, whether it wants to or not, is going to have to acknowledge that it can no longer can continue to kind of hold the, this grasp, the, this uh, singular uh, position over the rest of the world. 
I think that the conservative movement is, is increasingly okay with that option, but I would say it's a very rare thing for a world power to step back like this. Britain got to do it because we were there to basically just take mm -hmm. the torch, right? They got to hand that reality off to someone that was more or less aligned with many of their goals. I know some sure. of my, my English uh, followers are screaming right now about that, but but you know, generally, at least somewhat culturally aligned with with with, uh, with kind of that, we don't have that option. We can't just mm -hmm. hand this thing off to China or somebody. So, what what would it look like for the United States to scale back those operations and exist inside a multipolar framework without surrendering entirely, uh, kind of that the great power status that it wields? Mm -hmm. Well, I I, you know, in my view, I think that would if you kind of go throughout the various, you know, theaters of the world, I think in Europe, uh, that would mean the United States uh, having an exit strategy when it came to NATO uh, over a period of, say, 10 years so that the European countries slowly can be providing for their own defense and really stepping up there and the United States still remaining active diplomatically, uh, but not so much militarily. I think in the Middle East, it's a similar situation where, um, where where the United States could scale back and it's going to probably look ugly in the early stages as there's a new balancing that's being sorted out. And then I would say after those two maneuvers or while those two maneuvers are, are taking place, I think uh, America is in a, a great power competition with China. And, you know, I would put more of an emphasis on na naval supremacy and, you know, and maintaining our sea power uh, so that we can still, you know, keep keep trade lanes relatively open and maintain dominance uh, on the sea. So that's, you know, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I think that's what it would look like. Um, and I think the, the transition in Europe would probably be the easiest one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Middle East would be a little more tricky as we saw what the rebalancing looked like. And I think there'd be more agreement on the maintaining the sea power and having a harder line against, uh, you know, Chinese expansion. Yeah. I think it's difficult for a lot of people. You know, I, I mean, we saw what happened with, uh, you know, kind, kind of the events in Gaza and how quickly a right that had more or less said, no, we're, we're no longer for foreign power uh, policy interventionism. All of a sudden, there was an incredible, you know, amnesia that swept over everyone who had just learned that lesson. I think it's difficult because people are so used to feeling that America is making decisions in countries, even if it's by just not being involved. So mm -hmm. if you do not immediately send aid to Israel or you not immediately militarily intervene in Ukraine or you're not somehow, you know, immediately taking an action, no matter where it is around the world that the United States is therefore making a choice uh, in that scenario. And to be fair, I guess that's true when you're a global hegemon, right? Like when everyone is looking to you to say, okay, well, does America put its thumb on the scale or not? Then no decision is as good as a decision. Mm -hmm. But part of being a multipolar uh, kind of world, I think would be understanding that other countries are going to have spheres of influence. Other civilizations will have those. And understanding that it's not your job to necessarily step in the moment that they decide to make decisions, mm -hmm. even if something terrible happens along that, those lines. Definitely. And I, and I think that one of the things we were realizing, and this gets back to the, the, the administrative state and the deep state and the oligarchic class, 
is that when there's a big, you know, foreign policy, let's say when Russia invades Ukraine, for example, uh, often in these situations, right, it's 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 not Congress that, that begins deliberating at first. It's not even the president who often says, you know, let's go and start moving these things. It's actually the, you know, the, the State Department and the Department of Defense. The, the mechanism of responding to every crisis around the world, it almost begins automatically from within the bureaucracy, regardless mm-hmm. of if the president wants to do it or not, or regardless of if there's a debate in Congress at all, uh, which I think gets back to uh, the problem that, that, that I raised earlier in my piece, which is as conservatives, uh, we obviously want to, to, to defeat the administrative state. We want to right you know, the direction of the country. But you're in a really challenging position when you don't actually control any of the major institutions. It would be one thing if it was just one or two of the institutions, but you just go across the board and they're all in the hands of the opposition. So you have this, this you know, the, the populist sort of backlash and revolt, but then you get someone like Trump in office and then, the, then sort of the whole institutions are trying to just basically go radioactive to get this pathogen out, out of the system, no matter what... Um, you know, no, no, at any cost. And so I think the the problem that we face is how can you defeat the oligarchy? And and I think it's hard if you're just locked in uh, a head to head combat with it when you don't have any power. So as we're as we're kind of thinking about the politics of transcendence, it's figuring out can you transcend the oligarchy? Can you go above the problem instead of tackling it head on? Yeah, and, and that was definitely something I was going to get to. You know, you're talking about strengthening, you know, the the naval profile and those things. And of course, that's perfectly reasonable as long as your military isn't primarily now being trained to hate the people of the United States, you know. But but the problem is that the strengthening of any institution at this point, like you said, is the strengthening of kind of people who often are working against the interests of the United States because of the way that the left has just uh, uh, obtain dominance in all of those areas. I have heard, so I, I don't know if you read Patrick Deneen's uh, latest book, the regime change book. I did. I, got, I have to say, I, I, I love uh, how liberalism failed, uh, but I, I, f- I felt like that book was lacking because it talked a lot about, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, how we can think, for the good of uh, work, work for the goods of the nation and those kind of things. There's a lot of that uh, restoring that kind of common bond, those kind of things, but it never felt like there was a way that the institutions themselves would flip. You know what I mean? Like it was like, well, we, we could have everyone guarantee service. It's like, well, you could guarantee service to a state that hates you. It's like, well, we could, you know, we, we, we could, you know, change the way we funnel educational focus. Like, Okay, but it's still owned by people. You know what I mean? And so, like, there's a scenario where it was like, well, here's the things I would like to do once the regime has changed, which is great. Like, a lot of them sound good in theory, but it felt like all of them were things that would never actually bring that about. And I think, you know, when you're talking about that politics of transcendence, it is important, I think, to, to once again kind of locate the good, the common vision, the common moral vision for for people and tie that directly into their governance governance that it's not about just, you know, figuring out the angles or the edges experts do running all the numbers, but there, there's a shared identity and a shared goal. And those things are actually tied directly to the way that statesmen operate. Like all of those things sound great. And I'm on board with all of them, 
but it's that bridge. You know, it feels like there's that, 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 that elephant in the room that's a mile wide. And that's the thing that I'm, I, I'm concerned about, even though I agree a hundred percent with the need to link those things together. Sure. So yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I think there are, so I, I guess if we're, if we're, if we want to go to more at a sort of a practical level, um, if you take now, it's a question. There's still the question of institutions in the long term. But I think if you take a look at DeSantis in Florida, right, you have a state that was basically, you know, a purple state kind of it could, could could go either way. And he wins a narrow election there his first time as governor. And I think what's important is that in that first time, you know, that he was elected, I think the main areas that he focused on, they were they were risky areas from a national perspective, because people were going crazy with the COVID lockdowns and things like that. But I think he, is he really put all his eggs in the basket of policies that were really popular, you know, that and they were, some of them were bold, like not shutting the state down and sending kids back to school and things like that. Uh, you know, really fighting back against the excesses of, of the woke ideology. But he focused on this pop on popular policies and that allowed him to build almost a 20 point majority going into his second term. And then he was able to deliver sort of concretely on reforms that I think will hopefully be more structural and longer term. And so my hope would be um, that at a national scale, that there are enough Americans that, that for as, 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 as much as we lament forgive the the bright beam of sun pouring in <laughs> over my shoulder. You're Apologies. transcending right in front transcending of us. Transcending yeah. right now. Is that for, for you know, that there's a enough of the population um, that is fed up with crime, is fed up with, you know, the, the situation at the southern border, is fed up with, you know, kind of go down the line of issues that you could build a 60, 70, 80 percent majority be, be, beside, you know, behind some serious policies uh, and then use that for maybe a second term where you where you engage in more radical, um, you know, um, sort of rethinking of the of the way that we do politics. In my piece, I really focus on two core areas because you can't fight every battle all at the same time. It's just impossible. Right. So you have to pick either the the areas where they're the weakest or areas where, um, uh, you know, for, for example, education is one where I think. That's really the the heart, uh, you know, of all of the the problems that we're currently facing in America today. So yeah. you have to think of ways that you could totally um, uh, dismantle that educational uh, apparatus. And uh, so I think that's one area that we need to start thinking creatively. And I think there is a sense where uh, you know fighting on on DEI and woke issues um, will work to an extent. Um, but I also think there are other ways where it's just structurally, even if even if DEI or woke wasn't a thing, right? And we were just back 20, 30 years ago, you had multiculturalism then, but it wasn't quite as pernicious as it is now. I think there still are some major structural problems with our education system, uh, which is simply that it's just not necessary to send, you know, a third of your population to essentially take on, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80,000 in debt to go to basically resorts for four years where they're learning things that are just simply not relevant to either the, the moral foundation, the political foundation or economic foundation of the country, but even just practically to their job. So I think there are ways in which you could talk to most people and say, 
you know, you can't set the woke stuff aside because that's very important. But even just just looking at it from the perspective of excellence, is the educational model delivering for Americans? I think 80 percent of Americans would say absolutely not. You know, and I think if you were to if you were to shift to a model that focused more on apprenticeships and vocational training, you could really take a lot of the power uh, out of the current left wing university system. And you'd actually be delivering in a way for broader swaths of the American people and kind of reducing polarization while hopefully making us sort of wealthier, wealthier and people better, better off. So that's, you know, that's one idea. Um, but I'm sure there are many, many others. No, I think it's critical to dismantle those things. Like you said, so much of the conservative mindset has just been this scattershot. It's this constant response that they're doing. Uh, you know, whatever issue is currently being waved in front of them, there's never a focus on, okay, yes, we have political power, but we could use this to simultaneously better the situation of those that we're supposed to represent while also removing the ability of our enemies to kind of wield this power. And so mm -hmm. I think it's critical for those steps. You know, I'm certainly not going to ask you to figure out the entire transition because that's a monumental task for everybody. But, but I think it's important to mix, like you said there, that you know looking high and looking low because if you mm -hmm. want to if it's difficult for a lot of people conservatives too honestly to think about a politics of transcendence because again it's all about these you know i want i paid x amount of money to a politician i made a donation i did the thing and i want to see like my taxes go down five percent right like there's this this tit for tat directly and that's important you know like you, you you need that but also if you're going to connect to something that that's going to shift the way that people view kind of the, the, the moral vision of the United States, the purpose of its institutions, the thing that it's going to bring its connection to, to kind of its statement statesmen and its leaders, that's going to take a, a, a much deeper pull. That, that's going to require people to look far beyond those, those small issues. So you simultaneously yeah. have to figure out how to leverage away the power of the administrative state, like you're talking about, but you also have to figure out how to shift the mindset of people who have been locked into this very small ball version of politics, you know, mm -hmm. where, where it's all about making sure that you reduce the marginal tax rate here or shrink the size of government by 1% somewhere, as opposed to a, a, a real mindset shift when it comes to the way that, that people are viewing the government. And so I, I guess the question is, you know, alongside those more practical things that you were just talking about, what is a what is a mindset shift that you would like to see that would allow people to have that that a better understanding of the way that kind of maybe uh, the common good or, or the good of people should be tied as opposed to a particular economic ideology or a particular uh, you know economic policy? Sure. Yeah, I think this gets to something really important, which is you know part of the reason that I'm proposing this politics of of transcendence um, is that. In the the, I think in the the response to for the past thirty years, we had a highly idealistic, uh, abstract understanding of America, right? That we were going to export to the world, and it was uh, you know a combination of political liberalism and and, and neoliberal economics, and um, the response to that has been the rise of you know populist nationalism. And I think there there's something healthy about that, which is it's it's basically saying, okay, so we we need to get back to an understanding of what serves American interests and the American people uh, and the American nation. 
but I think it's not enough if we stop with with realism and if we stop with an interest-based approach to politics. The reason is, is because if you look all the way back throughout human history, uh, you know, great leaders don't uh, focus, it, you know, their, their policies do benefit the interests of their constituents, but, th- but good, great leaders never frame things purely in materialistic, realist terms, right? They have to have a transcendent vision. And, and back in the sort of the ancient world, right, you, the, the political leader was a link between heaven and earth, right? This is sort of ubiquitous in nearly every kind of ancient culture. And it, for various reasons, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, that uh, began to unravel. And then sort of with the Enlightenment, uh, that kind of cord ended up snapping. But the, the reality is um, uh, that, that that understanding of kind of the, 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 the political leader sort of pointing people towards more transcendent, more ultimate ends, that never actually went away. It's sort of impossible to make that type of thing go away. And, and you see in America the development, well, well we never had a you know, formal, the national level and established church. Americans looked to their leaders to point them towards the transcendent. Uh, they, they developed a civil religion, right, with, with a very active sense of the role of providence, the role of the republic, um, it, in this story of liberty playing out in a cosmic way, and God intervening on behalf of, of the country. You see this, if you look at the, the Thanksgiving Day proclamations, you see it you know, in George Washington saying we, it's the duty of all nations to obey God. You know, and he's talking about nations, not just individuals. You see it in Lincoln in all his speeches, the Lyceum Address. Uh, you see it in his Getty, Gettysburg Address. You see it in Teddy Roosevelt saying, look, the things of the, the body of our lo- lower order, right? As a civilization, as a nation, we need to prioritize the things of the soul. Even in FDR's uh, first inaugural address, he uses the biblical imagery of, of chasing the money changers out of the temple, you know, and sort of restoring kind of these old truths back to their place in the sacred, you know, go all the way out throughout American history, even the more liberal, um, you know, if you go to Barack Obama, you know, like these are transcend, they're leaning into transcendent themes, you know, and, and so I think that if conservatives are going to win, and, and I think this is tough, because I do think there is in in some ways there's an there is a there's a weird sense where there actually haven't really been that many um you know pro, I, I would say e- even though america is kind of at its root a protestant nation um i don't think there's there's been in recent memory very many kind of pious evangelicals in 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 top leadership positions sort of in the american presidency so you actually have a there's a, an odd sense in which i think americans are very receptive to the American civil religion understood in transcendent terms. And they're a little bit more uncomfortable with kind of a Mike Pence style uh, evangelical approach. Um, Right. And and I don't know all the reasons why that is the case, uh, but I think it's, you know, I think it's true, but regardless, I think there is a way to look at our own tradition and to kind of look back at this ancient tradition uh, and I'm not saying that that America needs to to adopt sort of an ancient Mesopotamian understanding of sort of a god king, right? That's that's not what I'm calling for. What I'm saying is there needs to be a politics of of transcendence where leaders are pointing us towards these ultimate ends, and then that should be accompanied by a politics of the common good that is seeking to restore and help 
ordinary Americans live lives of virtue and have, you know, flourishing families, flourishing uh, economic lives and securing those those common goods of the community. And then I think finally restoring a politics of beauty. You know, if you look back at the great leaders throughout history, they were builders. They were builders of monuments, uh, of national parks, of cathedrals. Like they really elevated the, their civilization and that beauty endured for centuries. And, you know, I think if you look, look at America 500 years from now, you will see the beautiful monuments on the, the mall. You know, when you fly into Washington, D.C., you look out and you see uh, the Lincoln Memorial, you see the Capitol, you see the Washington Monument. And these are sort of stirring and ennobling the soul. And so I think we have to think about building those types of things that can really capture the hearts and minds of a new, uh, a new generation. I agree with much of that. And, uh, but I think, so, so I, th I think you made a couple interesting points of analysis there that are probably worth going back and, and, and pulling on the thread of. So you said that you know, the, the left is, leans into this politics of transcendence that guys like Barack Obama, and I think you're exactly right. You know, there, there's a reason that he gets uh, elected and all of a sudden he starts talking about how the waters are going to recede. And the, you know, like, it, you know, he talks about like he's some kind of a Moses figure. That, that's suddenly been elected. I don't think that's a mistake. But and you're right that the 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 right is far more uncomfortable with that. They're they're far more uncomfortable with the, they'll lean into a civic religion, but they won't lean into a, a, a specifically religious mindset in some ways. And I think that's a bit of a problem because I think the left owns, for better or for worse, the current definition of the American civic religion, which is kind of this permanent liberation of all. Uh, bonds right like this is this is kind of the the current iteration of the american uh, civic religion is we have to get rid of all differences of outcome we have to uh, uh, you know equity inclusion you know but but of course those have specific loaded terms right they're not actually about any kind of uh equal opportunity they're about a very specific need for uh outcomes to return it looks like we may have lost john there for a second so I'll talk for a moment. Hopefully he'll be back soon. But one of the things I was going to ask John about is that kind of in our current scenario, while I think he's right that the left own kind of the, this, this idea of the civic religion uh, and that they lean into it, the right has a problem because they don't know what to coalesce around. I, I think that he's right that we need a kind of a politics of transcendence. We need a vision of the common good. We need a politics that pursues that. But unfortunately, in our current scenario, there is no united vision of the United States. I mean, the left knows what unites them, their opposition to what has been the traditional United States. They don't like the people who made up the United States. They don't like the Constitution, the beliefs, the religion, those things. Good to have you back there, Johnny. Yeah, I lost Sorry, you for a second. No, no problem. It's uh, always the excitement of, of the Internet. But I was just saying to the audience, you know, what, what I was saying to you, which is that, you know, the, I think you're right that the left leans into this and that, that Americans are more comfortable with this idea of the civic religion than they are with a specific American uh, kind of relig religiosity. Uh, however, uh, because the left owns this vision and largely the story is the civil rights vision, right? That, that, that's pretty much what dictates the left's understanding of kind of what American, the American civil religion could be. It means it's hard for the, for the conservative movement to really establish a politics of transcendence 
because they don't have a shared vision of the good. Even when I tell you, know, I talk to local distance. Uh, I don't talk to James Lindsay because he blocked me, but he loves to scream at me when, from behind a block. When people like this are talking, they don't have a shared vision on the right. Like there is no shared understanding of what the American identity would be and what the good is. Now the left might have many different factions, but they're at least moving towards a direction, which is just kind of this eternal march of civil rights as where the right, I don't think, you know, I think they want that to kind of be part of their story, uh, which, which is its own problem, but they, they don't have anything to separate themselves. All they can be is a weaker version of the left. And, and how, how would you create a politics of transcendence on the right when it doesn't seem to have a, a, an understanding of even what that civic religion would look like. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge with, uh, you know, with America is that in establishing that independence, right. We broke from the, the, we broke from England. We broke from the aristocratic tradition in England. We sort of severed those cords. And even though our, you know, our common, you know, the sort of the common law tradition and other aspects of that Anglo-American tradition were preserved in the United States, we were charting out in new waters, right? And and part of that was a project of liberation from some of these older uh, ways of 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 thinking and approaching, you know, government and the relationship to the state. And at the time, we were relying, in, you know, in our early republic on, you know, very kind of learned uh, men. You know, think of people like John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, who had some of these aristocratic qualities, but were going to you know, uh, you know, serve in, is, is the president or serve in the Senate and kind of elevate this democratic republic of ours. And and there was a, a, a process of liberation that occurred to establish the independence of the American system. The challenge is how do you how do you stop that process of of independence and liberation once it's set in motion? How do you you know, preserve some sort of understanding of a traditional way of life when Americans are are so entrepreneurial. You know, you read Alexis de Tocqueville and he says, you know, they buy a field in the spring, they plant their seeds and before harvest in the fall, they've already sold it and they've moved west, you know, for another plot of land. This is a very, that's not a conservative impulse. It's not necessarily a bad impulse. You know, it's an energetic entrepreneurial mindset that sort of is in, in a tension with uh, tradition, right? And so there has to be some way that you have a productive tension between the innovation and tradition. And I think the the progressives and the you know the liberals today kind of follow. It's not really an alien path, you know. It's sort of a natural path for America if you're not if America has once America has become sort of unmoored, you know, from any kind of foundation. So there has to be a way. And it's really like, okay, what are the ways to establish us in a more traditional sense? Um, it's really just the things that have always helped people be more traditional in their life. It's family, it's religious faith. Uh, and I think it's also an economic system or model uh, that is actually, you know, I think making more things in America, right? I think it's a less financialized uh, system. I think it's a system that that's really focused on a greater connection to our land, to our industries, to our resources, to help establish a greater tradition. I think on you know immigration is another example. Um, you know there needs to be a way in which the pace of immigration is you know is slowed to allow sort of a proper assimilation. And you know there are policies that that can uh, help to bring that about, uh, but it doesn't happen overnight. 
Yeah, and obviously this, the powers that be have no interest in it. I mean, I personally, I think we have to have a long moratorium on immigration. I think if you want to create a, an actual polity, I think if you want a shared vision, first you have to have a stable population. I think it's impossible for people to share a tradition, to share a goal, to find a value in, in the in the transcendence until there's, there's a stable community and culture where you can cohere and, and find that vision together. And if you constantly are, uh, you know, having a revolution of population every, you know, five, 10 years waving, you know, waves of that coming across your border, I just don't, I don't see how it's ever possible to, to achieve that goal. But of course, you know, like we said, we can't solve every one of these, uh, these problems while talking about, you kind of, you have to talk about that, that end goal. And then you have to talk about the policy. I understand we can't, we can't fill every one of those by ourselves because we don't, we don't control all those institutions in the moment, but it's still important to explore uh, that notion. I wanted to talk about one more thing before we go. You had another article that was about Aristopopulism. Uh, I thought that was in interesting because it sounded a little bit like uh, a revolution from the middle. It sounded a little, little, little bit like a, a little bit of Sam Francis there. But tell me, what is Aristopopulism, and, and uh, you know, what would be the goal there? Mm -hmm. So I think the problem with our elite class today is that their interests are completely unmoored from the interests of the, the working and middle classes of the country, right? For taking it, taking it, uh, trade, for example, um, you know, the, the mindset is, you know, how do we outsource as much as possible um, uh, on immigration? It's how do we kind of undercut our current, uh, you know, labor supply by adding more to it, driving down costs. Nearly everything is done um, to, to sort of effectively gut the working and middle class of their, their power, sort of their economic power, in order to really enrich a very small uh, percentage of the population. And I, and I think there, one solution to this, which I think is more the neoliberal solution, is that's fine. You know, let the process go and we're just going to kind of redistribute some of this on the margins, you know, give people a, a basic income and, uh, you know, they can DoorDash food to their door and they can kind of live this more servile existence. And it's, it's OK. We can feel good about that. But I think you have to find a way. And this kind of gets back to the whole part of uh, thing with my piece, you're always going to have elites, you're never going to get rid of them. The, the, the middle Americans, you're, you're not just going to destroy the elites and share the spoils. That's a fantasy, right? So there has to be some way, some way to realign the economic interests of the elites with the, the working and middle classes of the country. And so Aristopopulism is really a, a, an attempt at kind of recovering a healthy sense of noblesse oblige, where uh, you figure out how to, to reorient the moral, the economic, the spiritual uh, incentives for the elite class so that it actually promotes the flourishing of the whole regime and just not, not their own narrow economic interests. So uh, this is my question, because I like the notion, uh, like I said, it rings, it rings a little bit of that revolution from the middle, which I like. The, the, the main thing that I think about that uh, concerns me, though, is really just the high-low versus middle dynamic because I think a large reason that the middle class went from something that was a strength of America to something that the elites were actively looking to control was that it threatened their rule, right? It, it, the the middle class had to be re-proletarianized because if they if they were able to establish independence, if they were able to own their own homes, if they were able to start their own businesses if they were able to kind of become the bourgeoisie and, 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 you know, the kulaks 
don't need the system. That's why you got to get rid of them, right? Like they, they don't need the system. They have the ability to gum it up because they're not entirely dependent. It feels like as long as the country is scaled to a certain size, and this might go along with empire, and it might just be the same answer, but as long as the, the, the country is scaled to a certain size, the incentive is always going to be to bleed out the middle because you know the, the classic power move is take out the regional competition, the independent uh, competition, by siphoning money away from them and giving it to client classes that you import to, to you know, protect you. And of course, that's exactly what the Democratic Party is doing right now. And that's why corporations are more than happy to join along because, you know, it, they get to benefit by bleeding out all of the possible competitors to their monopolies. And so I wonder if you'll ever be in a position as, again, as long as we have these massive corporations and, and, and kind of global spanning governments where you would be able to kind of align those interests it, like do, does that have to go before alien interests can be aligned or the aligning of the interests naturally scale that down chicken egg egg chicken how does this work yeah well i so i think two two things um one i think you know i think of someone like robert lighthizer who's a friend of mine who is the the u.s trade representative uh during the trump administration and his his view on this is we're going to realign the incentives on trade and we they, we did that concretely with china and there was political action, you know, on a national security justification. It realigned incentives. And then all of a sudden you saw Silicon Valley get totally spooked on investing in China, right? And you saw a lot of kind of reinvestment and a lot of, you know, venture funds thinking about investing in America, so supply chains coming closer to home. Uh, COVID, I think, accelerated that as people saw the dangers of this highly globalized supply system. So that's a case that's that's sort of where you adjust some, you know, you tweak something from the top down, you change the incentives and, and things shift. So that's one way. I think there's a bottom up way that it changes too, which is it's actually a very unstable. If you go back again to the mirrors for Prince's tradition, you see, you know, two things, which sometimes are intention, you know, societies do need to be uh, growing economically, I think generally to be healthy, right? You don't you don't necessarily need radical economic growth, but you do need slow and steady economic growth. But at the same time, you know, so you so you see a, a lot of warnings in the mirrors for princes about uh, making taxes too high, you know. So you need to keep taxes at a generally low level, but at the same time, uh, income inequality is always very destabilizing for a regime. And so you need growth, but you cannot have uh, severe income inequality. And you see throughout that the tradition of advice for statesmen that when you get rising income inequality, the whole foundations of the regime become insecure and you see the rise of, of populism. You see Bernie Sanders, you see Trump. And so I think there's both a, a top down, you know, tweaking some of the policies, but also the bottom up sort of populist backlash um, that will, I think, eventually, I think you go through a cycle. I think what happened is there, there will be a rebalancing of these things in the future. The further, the more unequal they get, the more unstable the regime is, and there'll be a rebalancing. And then eventually it will probably get out of whack again, and then it'll have to rebalance. And this is, I think, is just part of a natural cycle. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. But of course, I want to thank Johnny for coming on. Uh, I know you've got the book. Is there anything else that people should be looking for? Want to tell people about the book or anything else ISI is doing that you'd like them to check out? Yeah, absolutely. So ISI hosts over 150 events on and off college campuses every year, lectures, seminars. And in the summer, we have our flagship undergraduate honors conference. We have faculty members like 
uh, Patrick Deneen, like Yoram Hazoni, and many other of your favorites. So I'd encourage you all to go to isi.org. Uh, look at our upcoming events. We are in the open application season for the honors program. So please uh, encourage you to apply for that uh, summer program. Excellent. Yeah, I have friends who are involved and uh, they, they enjoy it. So you guys are doing good work. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, of course, if this is your first time on the YouTube channel, please go ahead and subscribe. If you want to make sure that you catch all the live streams and other shows, please make sure that you go ahead and get those notifications because just because you're subscribed to me doesn't mean you actually want to see anything. And so, yeah, the YouTube's genius. They, they don't think you actually want to see anyone you subscribe to. So make sure that you go ahead and click on that. And of course, if you would like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Orr McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. All right, guys, good talking to you. And as always, we'll see you next time.